Welcome to the Teacher's Lounge, presented by Curriculum Track, a brief retreat from your daily routine to explore the latest thinking and practices from faith-based educators and instructional leaders from all over. Join us as we swap innovative ideas geared towards promoting your school's mission, and we'll keep the conversation as fresh as you like your coffee. Hey there. Have you ever dropped into the teacher's lounge at your school only to realize that you're entering into the middle of a conversation or perhaps you just missed the best part? That's sort of what's going on in today's episode. This is part two of a longer conversation. But the good news is that we got everything on tape. So while we believe the second part will be just as enjoyable and helpful as the first, and like the first, it's rich enough to stand alone, we would also encourage you to consider listening to part one of this episode in order to get the full picture. We don't want you to miss out. If you're ready to go with part two, let's jump in. No, I like that. I think that's good. I would say that what you're getting at there is the teachers need to wrestle with, if they haven't already, and many will have, but as I said about busyness and so forth, it might be that many teachers would say, yeah, honestly, I haven't really sat down and wrestled with that, just like I hadn't about what it yeah. meant to be a Christian educator until I had to write that paper. I would say that what you're trying to do is get students to wrestle with, how should my Christian identity, um, borrowing that language from Perry Glanzer from Baylor University, who talks about Christian identity and some of his writing yeah. and stuff. Not that it's unique to him, but he's the one I think I've picked that language up from. How should my Christian identity, the student should be asking, how does that inform what I'm supposed to be doing? How am I supposed to be living? And now, of course, the quick and easy answer is now you have a long list of all these things. Well, you shouldn't be doing this and you should do that. That's not what I'm really talking about. That too, sure, but that's obvious. And the students all know that and they've either bought in or haven't to some of those lists of rules that we've got for them. But what I mean is, how does it affect the way I treat my friends? How does it affect the way that I should respond to my parents who perhaps are really hard to get along with. Let's take the worst case scenario. You've got a student that's really having a hard time to get along with the parents. I'm sure there are a lot of students out there like that. And some for good reasons. Some parents are struggling and the parents and the kids are caught in the middle. So how does my Christian identity inform this? In other words, how does my Christian identity inform how I should be loving God and loving others? <laughs> to yeah. broaden it. I think that's really good. What I was going to say in answer to your question before you suggested that, and I thought I could piggyback on it, is I would almost ask a different question. It's still worldviewish. I like it, and it gets to what you're talking about. I like to ask the question, what, as a teacher now, and then the job is how do you get students to interact with this, do something more than just tell them that's a good start, but get them to interact with it. So as a teacher, to ask, what is it about my subject area or this particular course I'm teaching, either way, fill in the blank, whatever it is. What is it about it that would be important to God? Why does God care about this? Yeah. If I was creating an educational system from scratch, would this be included? Most of us would probably say, sure. Okay, why? We like to give a lot of pragmatic answers. You need this math course for the next math course. And that's true. You need the algebra <laughs> you need one skills. <laughs> Absolutely. Algebra one skills are 
critical for Algebra 2 and for calculus. If you go there eventually, I could go on and on. I like teaching Algebra 1. But the, the point is, it's not just the pragmatic answers are appropriate. They're true and appropriate, and students need to be aware of them, and sometimes they're not unless we present them to them. But I'm saying something more. How do you think God cares about it beyond just the practical, which he cares about too, but is there yeah. more? For example, if you're teaching English and you're teaching English grammar and or writing, they overlap. Diagramming sentences, that overlaps, which I'm not sure all schools are doing diagramming sentences anymore. So as a student, why should you care about this besides your grade and all that? Do you think God cares about how well we communicate to your friends right now? We're not talking about later on when you're an adult. If Jesus, if you love Jesus, if you're even just wrestling with the fact that all this Christianity stuff might indeed be true, as you've been told, and you haven't shut your mind off to that, you've got an open mind, it could be true. And you've got friends that are asking those same kind of questions. I came to Christ largely because of a conversation with a friend of mine who I don't know that he was even a Christian yet. But I started asking questions like, I wonder if there's really a God. And he played devil's advocate and said, why not? And that conversation went in certain directions <laughs> that made my heart yearn for something. I didn't even know what it was at the time. Yeah. And I wound up praying later after that conversation, God, if you're real, I want to know. And I had mm. this terrific sense of peace, like somehow I was going to know. I didn't have a clue what was going on. But high school student, you've got friends. You're going to have conversations like that. If you care about your friends... If you love Jesus, or even if you're willing to think that you might one day love Jesus, do you think it matters how you communicate? Do you think it matters yeah. if you can write or speak clearly? You could say, my friends don't care. Some of them might. If you text something, even using textees, and it's so vague that your friend radically misunderstands it, how helpful is that? And the student might say, well, you're really straining it in that here, aren't you, to <laughs> swallow a camel? Maybe, but it rolls out further, too, because as an adult, you have no idea the blogs, even as a high schooler, the blogs you may want to write, and you need to be able to write. So could learning how to write well be an act of love to your neighbor? Uh -huh. Yes, I think it could. And that's partly what I mean by looking at our subject matter. And it's a worldview-ish question, but... Why would God care about this subject matter? What's it got to do yeah. with living as a human being in this place and time where God has put us? Those are the big yeah. questions, and they're fun. To me, they're fun. A lot of teachers would say, yeah. it's not fun for me to think of that stuff on my own, but if you give it to me, I'll process it. And that's fine, too. Yeah. And that could go a lot of different directions. I think that's a powerful question. Why would God care that we learn to factor polynomials. We're going to spend two weeks on this. Why would God care about this? That is an important question for the teacher to yes. wrestle with. It is. But then you mentioned diagramming sentences, but what about keyboarding skills or writing cursive? And the list just goes on and on, like how we handle our technology classes. What's the purpose? That's a great guiding question, I think, that gets into what are we teaching, which is the first part of your idea about teaching Christianly. It overlaps with practices, too, yeah. how we teach. In math class, for example, you mentioned factoring polynomials. To many students, great surprise, not always pleasant. When they get into some really higher math courses, they discover that if they can't factor, they're in deep trouble. People in Algebra 1 will discover that if they haven't really mastered their multiplication tables, then they can't factor. 
surprise, things build on each other. Of course, we all know that. Those are the practical answers. But here's my point. Yeah. A lot of things in many courses, especially things like math, math tends to have a lot of students. Most math teachers at some point in any given class, they've got some students in there that are going to be struggling that maybe don't particularly enjoy the math class. And I wish that weren't so because math is so neat the way it describes patterns, but we generally don't think of it that way. We think of it as a way to crank out answers. And yeah. math teachers try in vain to get their students to see it more richly. And my suggestion would be, don't give up on that. If you want your students to see it more richly, it's not about just telling them that. Find things they can do that will show them the riches, that it will make something in their heart say, yeah. this is cool. There have got to be things out there like that. You can come up with some, pray. God's more interested in your students' welfare than you are. And if you really want it for them, maybe God does too. But also you might find things online. But here's the point about how it overlaps with practices besides that that I just mentioned. Just the fact that it's difficult and you don't quit, that's a practice. If you continue to hang in there with something like factoring polynomials, that you really don't see the immediate value, you got to do it. And rather than grouse and grump and do the minimal amount necessary to get through it, which one can understand that sometimes, you only have so much energy. We as teachers, we learn to be merciful with our students. If they gave us 100% in every class all day, they would be dead by the end of the week. You can't give 100% for seven or so different classes every day. They have to marshal their resources and conserve their energy just like we do. We don't want to make them workaholics. Some of us struggle with that, right? Thinking that we have to do everything 100%. And I've certainly struggled with that. I like to call myself a recovering perfectionist. That might be why I see it so clearly. I came close to burnout a few times. Is it that God's going to use all the wonderful things I do or that God is going to use the things I do? Even if I have to stop at some point and say, I just can't do any more. It'll get 5% better if I give it another three hours, but I'm not going to do it. That's another subject altogether, but that's something I really struggled with. And some of our students do too. We don't want to teach them to be workaholics like I was. Yeah. And many teachers struggle with that, just to be honest. Most teachers come from that mindset, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. And it's applauded. There were times when I overdid it and I can see by hindsight, I was overdoing it, but I produced some stuff that was cool and I got a lot of, of kudos for that. Okay, that makes it harder to walk away when you start to feel like maybe this isn't faithfulness. Maybe it's overdoing it. Maybe for my family's sake, I need to ratchet this back and I'm just not going to have time to do that and that and that. I'm going to have to pick one of those three things. I'm not going to be getting as much praise and adulation. So there's an interesting choice, right, for us there. But that's all okay. That's where God meets us. God meets us in the things that are hard. If our students see that about math, God will meet you where it's hard. You will grow in ways you can't imagine if you hang in there. Yeah. And of course, growth mindset. There's a lot of neat things online about that. If somebody Googles growth mindset, Carol Dweck and others, Joe Bowler at Stanford University, a lot being done with what's called growth mindset that is rich and has terrific implications for thinking Christianly about how we live in the world, even though it's not a Christian thing, growth mindset, but it's certainly got implications for thinking Christianly. So that's a long answer, as usual, to your question. (laughs) Sorry. So let me ask it this way. Maybe just boil that down to a few bullet points. If you were to brainstorm some bullet-pointed examples of the how you teach when it comes to teaching Christianly, we talked at length about the what, the biblical worldview and all of that, but what does that look like as far as the how? What does that look like in classrooms? Teachers teaching Christianly might do this versus that. You have some examples along those lines? 
there are a number of things one can play around with. I think I tiptoe through some of those in some of those blogs. So just mm -hmm. to reference people to those, because I won't be able to unpack them at great length here, but they're touched on there. And I'm always happy to, if somebody wants to email me and unpack some of this further, I'm happy to do that too. I love working with teachers who are curious about exploring these things. Let me say this up front. A lot of what we're talking about, once we start to get into practices, a lot of it is going to sound to many teachers, it did to me at first, like we're really just talking about teaching well. In other words, many teachers don't recognize some of the teaching practices that are faith-motivated, faith-driven. They don't recognize those as teaching Christianly because they're not uniquely Christian. That is, a teacher in a public school might do the same thing. The difference is the reason why it's being done. When you start talking about practices, how we teach, many teachers can have the reaction I had early on when I started to be exposed to some of this, thinking that was new to me. You're just talking about teaching well, really. In other words, we don't always recognize it as teaching Christianly because it's not uniquely Christian. A teacher in a public school might do the same thing. So does that qualify as Christian teaching? And I think I would agree with, I mentioned Perry Glanzer from Baylor, also David Smith from Calvin University, and there are others, I'm sure, but those two in particular, I've read a good deal from them lately, and they would both say, what makes something Christian teaching? It's not that it's uniquely Christian. It's not something that Christians could, I think, as David Smith says in one of his books, that Christians can patent. It's your motivation. If it's faith motivated, if it's your Christian identity that's driving your commitment to this practice in the classroom, and I would go further to say then, because you're trying to encourage love of God and neighbor, then that makes it Christian teaching. In the research that I did, got survey input from about a thousand teachers across the country, Christian school teachers, K to 12. And a number of them would cite when they're asked about Christian practices in the classroom, the examples that they gave, they were invited to give examples. Some of the examples they gave, they were often standard educational practices. They talk about group work. They talk about differentiating instruction. So maybe that's not as jazzy as something that's uniquely Christian <laughs> that only a Christian would do. But I think it's powerfully shaping in students' lives. It's a big deal. It's definitely Christian teaching. Now, one might finesse some of that, too, and say that not only would you be doing group work, but because you really want the students not just to get the benefits one might immediately list from group work, but let's say as a Christian, you're very much aware. Now I'm shooting from the hip here. I haven't quite thought of this one until just now. So this might turn out to be one of those things that's really just weak, but I'm gonna throw it out anyway. I kind of like it as I play with it in my mind. We as Christians are very much aware that there are things we don't all agree about. We all believe Jesus rose from the dead. We all believe the Bible is the word of God. We don't all agree about other details, role of women in the church. We don't agree about origins issues. I mentioned that earlier. Nowadays, we're painfully aware that we don't all agree about politics and so on and so on. It goes on and on. We disagree about theological things. We disagree about the interaction of our faith with society. I think it's terribly important personally, and I did some things like this with my students. I think it's terribly important that our students in Christian school learn how to disagree Christianly. 
Paul has a lot to say about this in Corinthians and Romans along the lines discussing things like meat being offered to idols and that sort of stuff. He's talking about Christians, the weaker and the stronger brother, those conversations that folks can look up. He has a lot to say about how to disagree. And it's interesting that he, being an apostle, could have just settled those debates. Is it okay to eat meat offered to idols in the temple? He could have just said, it doesn't matter, let it go, move on. But what he says is, I myself am convinced that no food's particularly holy in and of itself. So in a sense, he answered the question. But the next thing out of his mouth is, so those of you who feel like this is okay and fine and good, your responsibility is to love your brothers and sisters who think it's wrong. And your responsibility, if you think it's wrong, is not to be judgmental towards those who think it's okay. So the strong, so to speak, we're not to look down their nose at the weak, and the weak we're not to judge. In other words, here's the apostle saying, rather than saying, here's the right way to approach this, just do it, live with it. He's saying, you guys disagree strongly about this stuff. It's a matter of conscience, and you need to be shepherding each other's consciences. You need to love each other anyway in your disagreement, not by removing the disagreement. I think there are huge lessons in that for us as people of faith in this day and age, obviously also in Paul's day and age. Maybe it's always been true. We need to get past the idea that the only way we can have unity is to have uniformity. We're not going to agree about a lot of these divisive issues anytime really soon. And I think the question I think is interesting, not that there aren't truth issues involved and that the right answer doesn't matter. I'm not saying that at all. That's just a whole nother discussion. We don't have time to unpack. But I'm saying that I think critically important in these things is God wants us to love our neighbor. God wants us to love our enemies. Even if we were to regard other Christians who disagree with us about the role of women in the church, let's say, or about an evolution creation question, even if we were to regard them as enemies, which I hope wouldn't be the case, but if we did, then God says, Love your enemies. Okay, so with that in mind, then, you say, how do I teach this material? How do I do group work? Is there a way we can do group work where one of my stated goals, the students will know this is what we're trying to practice, is disagreeing Christianly? That when you disagree, you're going to disagree respectfully because now, a person in a public school who wasn't doing it for faith-based reasons might still say, sure, you could disagree respectfully. My reasons are different. <laughs> my reasons are coming from my Christian identity. And some of the ways I would express it and develop it will probably differ because of that. They might not, but they probably will, at least eventually. When you tiptoe into these things at first, you don't see where these might go. It's really interesting you start to play with some of this stuff, how a few years later you're seeing things you didn't see before and you're finessing it. It's like any skill. I did a unit on Christian views of creation in my science classes, especially earth science. I didn't teach biology a lot, but I taught earth science a lot. 35 years straight, I had at least one earth science class. You can't teach earth science without encountering in the textbooks and whatnot discussion of ancient earth and ancient universe, big bang theory, big bang cosmology, and all of that. Even though biological evolution might or might not come up much, certainly the age of the earth and the universe did. So I knew that we just needed to process this. What I gradually did was create a unit called Christian Views of Creation. A much improved version of that unit is on a website, teachfastly.com, which I should mention because I gave them that unit essentially, and so they now have the rights to it. So am I referring to it here? To be fair and ethical and all that, I should mention that's where this thing lives now. Yeah. 
which by the way, I'll interrupt and say that Teach Fastly is linked in the Curriculum Track platform. That's a resource that we promote within Curriculum Track. So our users can find it through Curriculum Track or just go out to the website itself. So thanks for referencing that. Yes, yeah, and I'm glad that's linked. You'll see in there in the Teach Fastly website, and I think it has the same title that I used, Christian Views of Creation. I brought it into the working group, and we all finessed it and massaged it, and it was then sent out to reviewers who further finessed it and massaged it. So it's better now. The last few years I was teaching when I wanted to use that unit or some other teacher wanted to use that unit, I would refer them to the website rather than PDFs and whatnot because the website's better. So what we did there... I taught that unit for years and gradually became aware that it was just really important to me. The students learned to disagree Christianly and I wasn't intentionally teaching that. I could say it, but I realized that telling isn't teaching. It's a start, a good start, but the students need to interact with this somehow. What practices could I plug in here? And what it occurred to me was let's spend the first few days of the unit now, that's a big deal to a teacher because time is precious. Let's spend the first two or three days wading into this thing of how Christians disagree. So we looked at what Paul did and so forth. And then the students wanted to do a debate. I always had mixed feelings about that at the end of a unit like that. They want to do a debate and you're thinking, oh my goodness, this can go so sideways because you have such strong feelings. Christian views of creation was not about telling them what they ought to think about this so much as, except for the bottom line that all Christians agree that God made everything. The mantra of that unit was that we all agree, Christians who believe the Bible's God's word, we all agree that God made everything, but we really disagree about how and when. And so that was the, the unit was, here's why Christians disagree about how and when. I wasn't trying to push them into a particular position. So I could see a debate going all kinds of interesting places. But the point was, the debate gave them a chance to further practice. Besides those first few days, it gave them a chance to further practice this thing of disagreeing Christianly because the bottom line for the students, their grades, right? They knew part of their grade was, did they handle themselves respectfully when somebody said something that got their dander up? got them upset or whatever. Did they at least try? Now, and I made that clear to them. I don't expect perfection. I expect you to try. If I see that you're making an effort to be respectful, to handle your conversations graciously, you're fine. No problem. If I think you're not trying at all, that's going to be an issue. I never had an issue. I never had a student that I couldn't see wasn't trying. Never had to have that one-on-one -on -one conversation with them or whatever and say, I'm really thinking I should lower your grade a little bit here because never had to do that. So that's just one small example. It's just a matter of trying to think what's important for you, for these students, and God can help you see those things over time. And how do you go about giving them practices, things they do, especially if they can do it repeatedly, that can move them in that direction? I'll share one more because it's a different kind of example, and it's so easy to do, but it feels strange in most of our evangelical schools. I worked with a seventh grade English teacher once. Uh, terrific English teacher. She had her seventh grade English students every morning say, at the beginning of class, say a short prayer. It was basically two or three sentences, just devoting the class to the Lord and asking him to bless their time and that sort of thing. I did something similar with my graduate course when I taught it in person. Now it's online. It's a little different. To give you a feel for what this was like for the graduate students, mine went like this. I'm going to read it here off another screen I just brought up. Father, we embrace your gifts. Now these are adults being taught in a class on Christian education. So these are teachers. 
or pastors or people who teach in various roles, homeschoolers. Father, we embrace your gifts as paths to service. Please guide us in teaching well that love for you and others might increase. So that's the prayer. Very simple little thing, an invocation. This teacher had her students saying one that was appropriate for seventh graders every day. She would have students coming back to her the next year, eighth graders, saying, we really miss that prayer. Isn't that interesting? I'm sure at first, she'd have them say this out loud together. I'm sure at first it felt a little weird. It's not something we do in a lot of our churches, saying prayers out loud together. It's not part of our culture often. And so it feels a little strange, but over time, it doesn't feel strange. That's the nature of a practice routine. After a while, it doesn't feel strange. And even my students, my graduate school students, seminary students, with this prayer, I had people mention how much they appreciated that. It doesn't have to be complicated. They shape our imaginations. They shape the way we see life and the purpose of life and what's good and on. There's much more that can be said about that, but there are whole books on that stuff. Yeah. Well, and at a risk of oversimplifying it, because I don't want to do that by any means. But as I'm listening to this, I just keep going back to one of my own mantras, which is focus on relationships, right? The heart of teaching is focus on relationships, draw on relationships, and that can help guide you towards best practices. Yes, I think that's true. The whole thing of the goal of loving God and others, increasing in our love for God and others, it's relational. Yep. At the heart of it, it's relational. Now that will express itself differently in different subjects with different age students and teacher personalities. Some of us are very gregarious and outgoing and extroverts. Others are not at all. Many teachers, I'm tempted to say most, but I don't know of any data that would support that. It might be out there, but I haven't seen it. I should say them, since data is plural, we tend to deal with it like a collective noun, but technically it's a plural. But I haven't seen information to support this, but I have a sneaky feeling that the majority of teachers out there are introverts. Since we generally work alone in our classrooms, we're pretty comfortable in that kind of a setting. We don't need to be extroverts. Teachers need to get past that too. I used to think, knowing I was an introvert early on, I used to feel guilty about that. Something's wrong with me. And I'd look at my colleagues who were very gregarious and some of whom were very gregarious and obviously had like youth pastor kind of gifts. And I thought something was wrong with me. Yeah, that's a big pitfall for teachers though, right? I'm not like teacher down the hall, so I must not be a good teacher, especially in the area of measuring relationships. Like my relationships with my students aren't like theirs, so therefore I must not be as effective. What a big lie, you know? Just call it what it is. (laughs) I had a good relationship with my students. We enjoyed each other, but it wasn't like they weren't in my classroom all the time and during my planning period and that sort of thing. And I don't know that I would have flourished well if they had been, because the key to being an introvert is not that you don't like people. Introverts love people, or many do, just like any other group of people. Some love people, maybe some don't, but certainly teachers who are introverts, we love people. But the difference is that we recharge by ourselves. We recharge alone. We don't recharge in groups. And so I used to feel like something was wrong with me because I was that way. Those are the areas where God meets us. It's where we struggle and we wish we didn't have those struggles. And of course, suffering is suffering because it really is suffering. So I'm not trying to explain it away. Oh, we should all just be happy and bursting with laughter all the time. I'm not saying that at all. Suffering is real, but that's where God meets us. If your area of suffering is feeling like you wish you were more, that's where God will meet you. This is easy for me to say. I'm 68 years old. It's one of the advantages of getting older, I think. You do begin to see your faith history. 
You begin to realize that God really does have things in control, even though you're a mess. You're a mess and you get increasingly comfortable with it. Not necessarily you'll ever be entirely comfortable with it. At least I'm not. I'm a recovering perfectionist. Of course, I'm not going to be comfortable with my mess. But it's there. And that's where God meets me. And it does constantly remind me, who am I trusting? Who am I trusting? This is one of the things that got me praying for my students. Some of those who are hearing this podcast are going to cringe when I say this, but I didn't pray really faithfully for my students. Not like I should have. I wasn't praying for each one of them until maybe the last decade of my career. I'm ashamed to admit it. It doesn't mean I wasn't praying for them at all or certain individual students who are having struggles, of course, but I wasn't praying as consistently as I should have for the whole group. And what made that change was, <laughs> I can't remember, Michael, if I've ever told you this or not, but one day I had an epiphany. It's just the strangest thing. I'd been teaching for 25 or 30 years. I don't know why it took that long before all of a sudden it struck me one day. I was thinking about teaching Christianly at the time, I believe, and it occurred to me that even if I taught perfectly, my classes were engaging excellent pedagogy. My faith and learning connections were spot on and they were engaging students and everything was perfect. Even if I taught perfectly, it occurred to me lives would not change unless the Holy Spirit worked, unless the Holy Spirit used all that stuff. I'm just saying it. It's so obvious. I had never just seen it. Eyes to see, let him see. I had just never seen it. And it was jaw-dropping moment. And I thought, oh my goodness. I have spent my adult life, my career, trying to hone my craft, both as a science teacher and also as a science teacher teaching Christianly. And now I'm realizing that in a sense, the thing that matters most to me has come to matter most to me, which is life change for the students, isn't going to happen unless something completely out of my control takes place. And at that point, I realized this is why we pray. And that got me going. I started praying. I've developed a system because I need a system or I'll forget. Simple little system that I devised where I could pray for all of my students. Not all of them every day. You can't sustain that. It's too much. I took my class list and I'd take five names and pray for them one day. As soon as I came to school and sat down at my desk, before I forget, I'd pray for those five students. The next day, I'd take the next five and all that. It didn't take but a few moments. I could pray longer if I felt like it or had time. But even if I only had moments, that's all it took. And that became a practice for me, which shapes me. But that's what got me going on that was realizing these are the places God meets us, where we're struggling. And it's where we learn to trust him. And I had to learn in a way I hadn't before to trust him with my teaching. Not just to trust him that he'd help me do it well which is fine and good. That's all wonderful. But to take it a step further, realize that I had to trust him to make it all work at all, even if I did it perfectly with his help. I don't know if that's going to make sense to folks, but it sure did to me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I think we as educators are always looking for best practices, emerging practices, trying to get better at our craft. And I think the point you're making, which I think is so powerful, is as Christian educators, we get to partner with the Holy Spirit and he is the teacher, right? We get to partner with his work and that's what sets us apart in our profession. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And then we come into, what does it mean to trust God? What do we trust him for? 
Well, we're trusting him to do his work in his way, in his time. And you'll have students who will leave your classroom or if you teach high school, graduate. And it seems like all your prayers are for naught. But God's time schedule may not be yours. And sometimes those of us who've taught long enough have had this experience. It doesn't always happen, but sometimes some of those students will come back five years later and they're youth pastors and stuff like that. So that's encouraging. But even in those cases where that doesn't happen, you never know. Somebody could be on their deathbed and something God uses, emphasis on God's use here, we can't control it, something God uses from their time in our classroom, the Holy Spirit brings it to mind, and they throw themselves on God's mercy at the last moment. Who knows? We don't need to know. We just need to know whom we trust. God can do anything. He's full of surprises. We are engaged in something exciting. It's not about the nuts and bolts of our getting everything right. We're not going to get it all right. We do the best we can. We try to be faithful. Ultimately, this is an adventure of God being at work and our trying to dream big dreams as to what God might do. That is what God will do, even if we don't know the details. We're not trying to tell him what he's to do. And trying to get our students to dream big dreams as to why they should care about their education why they should let God shepherd them through the stuff that's hard. And I got to read something. There may not be time for this in the podcast to include it, but I'm going to read it anyway. I love this short little passage. It's from the first book in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings trilogy, Fellowship of the Rings. And it's in chapter eight. It's the very first paragraph of chapter eight in the Fellowship of the Rings. And Frodo Baggins is this little hobbit who's embarked on a journey that is going to be horrifically difficult and costly and taxing and scary. And he has no idea what's coming, but he's seen a little bit of it already just in the beginning of this journey. And he's in the house, the thing I'm going to read, he's in the house of this sort of humorous, supernatural sort of protector figure named Tom Bombadil. He's in Tom Bombadil's house safe, finally, from some scary stuff they just experienced and unbelievable things that were going to be coming. And it says this. It says, That night they heard no noises, but either in his dreams or out of them, he couldn't tell which, Frodo heard a sweet singing running in his mind, a song that seemed to come like a pale light behind a gray rain curtain and growing stronger to turn the veil all to glass and silver until at last it was rolled back and a far green country opened before him under a swift sunrise. And I like to think, the older I get, the more I think, what we're trying to do in teaching Christianly, we're trying to give the kids a vision of a far green country. We're trying to give them a a hunger. We're trying to encourage, only God can make it happen, as I said, encourage a hunger and a thirst for this far green country, for something so mysterious and so wonderful. And maybe it's not yet, but just all of that. And we need that ourselves. If we as teachers don't have a far green country that we're heading for, this is what I talked about in that blog, inviting students to joy, then it's going to be harder for us. We need this too. And our culture doesn't promote this kind of thing that much. Here I am a science math guy talking like this, right? Sounds like I'm back to my English major days, right? <laughs> talking about this kind of thing. But our culture can be so 
pragmatic and just get it done and more is more as opposed to less is more. Don't take time to reflect. You've got too much to do. Stay busy, be productive. We need to step back from that and we need to ask God to help us catch a vision for a far green country that we want. This is one of the things that's kept me a Christian all these years. I want this, I realize, the older I get. I want this. I want something more. And I believe that it's to be found in Christ. I said, I suppose I might have said something similar 40, almost 50 years ago when I became a Christian, but it wouldn't have meant what it means now. <laughs> Not nearly as much. That's one of the neat things about getting older, too. Everything deepens. Well, Mark, let me just thank you for joining the podcast today. Maybe that's a good place to wrap our conversation up. I really appreciate your insights, your experiences, your passion for Christian education. So thank you for being with us today. I like to give my guests the last word. That's kind of what I call it. So just like to set up a scenario where you can address teachers directly. And I'm going to invite you to imagine that you're in the teacher's workroom at the end of the day, surrounded by educators who have just poured themselves out and you want to inspire them to push towards that next step towards teaching Christianly, what would you say to them as they flee the building and head home for the evening? How would you address a crowd like that? I think what I would say is, if they haven't already, wrestle with that seemingly simple but terribly deep question of, what do you want most for your students? And if the answer that you would give, as mine would have been 30 years ago, in all honesty, if the answer would be, I really want them to learn my subject well, and you know that I would want you to be saying something a little more than that, although that too, then you just give that to God and say, Lord, if there's more, show me. Let God have it. If you want to go to that, if you want the vision of a far green country, something more wonderful and deeper, more mysterious and exciting about your classroom culture, let's say, that can encourage students towards love of God and neighbor. If you want that, God wants it more than you do. And he'll show you what that looks like for you, your personality, your students, your classroom. It won't look like it looks for me. It will look like it looks for you, but the point is God will do it. And on the other hand, if you find yourself saying, what I really want for my students is life change. That is what I want most. I want them to learn my subject. I love my subject, but I want their lives to change. I want them to grow in their love of God and neighbor. Then pray. <laughs> the first step is the simplest. You don't need to worry about not knowing 20 things to do. There are lots of resources out there. God can lead you to them. Pray that God will guide you in what some first steps might be. And think about the things that you do in your classroom routines. How might those shepherd hearts, as well as just maintain good order, which is good too. So that would be what I would say, I suppose. It all boils down to as much as I love the details of teaching Christianly, as much as I love those resources on the Curriculum Track website, that wonderful stuff that Mark Eccles put together, that is so impressive. And I love thinking like that and doing that. As much as I love all of that, and it's critical, we need that. I think at the, at the heart of it, the heartbeat that will put life into all that, make a teacher want to dive into those things and use them well, is that question of, what do you want most? What are you dreaming for your students? And if you think, gosh, I haven't really thought about that before. Great time to pray about that. Lord, I don't have a minute to think about six extra things, but if this is important, take me there. Like when I was 15 years old and I didn't know what 
I was thinking or yearning for in that conversation with my friend about whether there was a God or not. But I just prayed, God, if you're real, I want to know. God hears those prayers. (laughs) He will take you where he wants you to be. It's his story written in your life. And it'll be exciting. That's great. Thanks, Mark. You're welcome. Thank you. Thanks for dropping by the Curriculum Track Teachers Lounge today. We hope this conversation helped you feel more connected to like-minded educators and provided you with a thought, an idea, or even just a smile as you seek to do all that you can for all of your students. If you found this conversation to be helpful, do us a favor and rate this podcast. Also, be sure to share it with others. We would be grateful to hear from you with any ideas, questions, or thoughts that you may have. You can find ways to connect with us at CurriculumTrack.com.